morning, everyone. Good Erev Shabbos. Levarchim, Chaydash Adar Beis, and Parshas Kolim. Continue, we left off in the second chapter of Chagiga, 15b on the bottom. So the last thing we learned was that uh, Nimus, Nimus Agardi, the weaver asked Rabbi Meir, does, if someone studies Torah, how do we know that he really absorbs the teaching of the Torah? He asked him, any wool that goes into a dyeing pot, does it absorb the, uh, the dye or not? In other words, when do, when do you absorb the Torah that you learn? So he says, if it's clean wool, that was just, uh, you know, from the mother, then it's clean, it absorbs the dye. And if not, not. In other words, mm-hmm. if the person internally has, is receptive, is pure, pure of heart, then he'll, then he'll, the title will have an effect on him. The title will affect him. It will die you, it will affect you, it will change you. But if not, then it won't. By the way, today's class we're dedicating to uh, Donna Lipman's father, Donna Lipman's father's yard site, Mardachai ben Minyamin. Does Neshama Shav and Aliyah. And, um... I don't know. So, so, okay, so that, 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 that was, yeah, now... Before we go on, the next piece of the Gemara, the second line from the bottom of 15b, there's many things about Elisha ben Avuya. We learned a great length, but in the Jerusalem Talmud, he expounds on it even, even with greater length, more details. You know, that he used to read, uh, he used to come into the shul and used to have, used to hide all these Greek books and philosophy, and it, like it fell out of his... Uh, you know, and, and that had an effect on him, even though he was trying to refute their arguments and trying to defend the Torah, but he was influenced by their authors and by their books. Um, the Gemara also says that um, he asked Rabbi Meir, what does it mean? What does it mean? It says at the end, the end is, um, the end is better than the beginning. So he said, Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Kiva, your teacher expounded, it means that when does it end well if it starts well? He says, and he uses himself as an example. He says, where did, where did it start that I became a Torah scholar, one of the greatest Tanoyim? He says, because, because when he was at his bris, so his father, Avuya, invited all the leaders of uh, Yerushalayim, the most prominent leaders, Rabbi Lezer, Rabbi Yeshua, the rabbis. And he sat them in the room with themselves while everyone else was eating and feasting and dancing away and clapping their hands. They said, you know, let's, let's learn some Torah. And they started studying Torah. It was like, like when Torah was given at Sinai with fire and a fire consumed them. And Abuya said, to them, what, are you burning my house down? He said, no, we're studying Torah. He says, wow, this is the power of Torah. I promise I'm going to dedicate my son to learn Torah. So again, his intentions were not pure. His intentions were because he saw the glory and the might and the power of Torah. He says, you know what, I want my son, I'm going to dedicate my son, I'm going to tutor him and make sure that he's going to become a great Torah scholar. So the beginning was not pure, it was for an ulterior motive. And that's why, look what happened at the end. He's telling, he's telling Rabbi, he uses himself as an example. And another, the Jerusalem Talmud adds that um, his mother, even more so, even before that, when he was conceived, his mother, when he was, when his mother was pregnant with him, he passed by a house of idolatry, and the smell that was coming out, she smelled the food that was coming out from there, which was like so, the aroma was so pleased that she had a craving. You know, when a pregnant woman has a craving, you know, you have to give her what she wants, and she ate from that food, and it was like the poison of a, of a snake that, was, that stayed in him and eventually emerged and surfaced and, and took over. Um, this is Elisha. Elisha ben Avuya. And, and once he became a heretic, he would actually go and discourage students. Students, young yeshiva boys would go into yeshiva and he would discourage them. Like, why are you wasting your time and all this, studying all this impractical stuff? Go and become a tailor and become a cobbler, do something productive with your life. And he was effective. He actually caused many students to abandon Torah. Now, um, on his... Now, here in the Gemara, the Gemara said that he, he, when the mayor was following him, he told him, stop, because you reached you reach the Tchum Shabbos. So because he didn't want the mayor to sin, that's why he was 
mentioned in Pirkei Avos. He's a mention for all future, you know, Elisha and Elisha. He's a mention because he had a certain merit. Um, on his deathbed, he was on his deathbed, a mayor came and said, do tshuva. So he says, me? I do tshuva? And he says, yeah, it's never too late. Toshiv Enoshadaka, it says in Psalms that even when Hashem, when a person crushes a person, he's on his deathbed, Hashem waits your tshuva. So mayor started crying, Acha started crying, and he passed away. The mayor said, I suspect that he did tshuva. But then, in his grave, a fire came to consume his grave. And the mayor put his palace over the grave and like says, you know, you sleep in this world when I when I pass away, I'm going to take care of you. And that's what he said in the Gemara, he should go to Gehenim. I'm going to make sure that he goes to Gehenim. And uh, he was in Gehenim for over a hundred years, close to a million hours. One hour in Gehenim is worse pain than 70 years of Job suffering. And it was all worthwhile just for him to reach the lowest level of Gan Eden to be able to enter into the Garden of Eden to experience that ecstasy that the Neshama experiences in heaven. That's the power of it. <laughs> okay. Second line from the bottom of page 15b. Interesting. Gemara said Abakiva entered in peace and he left in peace. Question is, they all entered in peace. Why is the Gemara said Abakiva was the only one? Because he entered differently. He entered with the right attitude. Well, the Pasuk says, I'll run after you. Mashcheni, pull me, and I will, I will run after you. After Rabbi Kiva, big shemal cheshars l'deichan. Even Rabbi Kiva, the angels wanted to show, to push him away. Leave him alone. Deserving to make use of my honor. Page sixteen a. My daughter. How did Rabbi Kiva know not to look toward the divine presence? Or how did he know to, to... He also saw what Elisha ben Avuya saw, Metatran sitting, and yet it didn't cause him to become a Zoroaster and to believe in duality. So why was Rabbi Kiva different? And he had the right approach. It says in, 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 in Deuteronomy, it should have said... So he learned that he's represented by a symbol. Amongst the angels is a symbol that that represents Hashem and he knew not to look there. Or he knew that the symbol is unique. And since the Metatrin wasn't unique, he saw other angels like him. So he knew Metatrin was not God. There's only one, one Hashem. Hmm. And it says, preeminent above a myriad of angels. He's represented by a likeness in his myriad. So again, it's unique. He's different. It says in Isaiah, Hashem is the master of legions. He is the, the master above his legion. He's unique, separate, apart. Because it says, Elion Avi said, Hashem, Hashem is not in the wind. And after the wind is an earthquake, Hashem is not found. Hashem is not, Hashem is not in the earthquake. After the earthquake is fire. Hashem, Hashem is not found in the fire. After the fire is a small, silent voice, thin voice. And then, and then we have Hashem. So therefore, he knew that what he saw, the angel, that's not Hashem. When he saw the, when he encountered this quietness, this Hashem, and he turned away, and he was respectful, and that's why he never lost, he never lost his, his faith. He, he entered in peace, and he left in peace. Six things were said about the demons. Three things are like, they are like the angels, and three things are like the human beings. They're like the angels, they have wings. They can fly from one end of the world like angels. They also know the future like, like the angels. What do you mean they know? Even angels don't know the future. <coughs> Only Hashem knows the future. They hear what's announced behind the partition. 
they get the inside scoop. Before it becomes public knowledge, they get the inside information. <laughs> so it's only about the immediate future. So like the, the Hashem announces behind, this, behind the screen, before it manifests itself into this world, through the screen, so they hear. So, and Shlesha, from the other, but other three things, are like people, they eat and drink like people. They're fruitful and multiply like people. And they die like people. Like semi-human, semi-angels. Six things are said about a person. Three things, three characteristic traits we share with an angel, and three like an animal. We have understanding, unlike animals. And we walk straight, like not like animals who walk on all four. We have the ability to look up and to think and to wonder, to look at the bigger picture. We speak Hebrew like the angels. Because angels don't speak Aramaic. We speak Hebrew. Three like animals. We eat and drink like animals. We're fruitful and multiply like animals. We eliminate waste like animals. So basically, everything below the head is like the animal. Well, our bodily needs. We eat and drink and uh, fruitful and multiply and, uh, and, and we have to eliminate the whole digestive system. You know, similar. What, what you, makes us unique is our mind, consciousness. That's what makes us unique, consciousness. Animals don't have that consciousness. Your mother said, Whoever looks carefully at these things is not worthy. As if it would have been better, he would never be born. The Mishnah said, It makes sense. He says, if you look, trying to understand what's above, what's below, you have to know your limits. Hakeem Akiva knew his limits. When it reached the ceiling, he didn't go beyond the glass ceiling. To, to, to go to Hashem, you can't, there's, there's a boundary. You have to know your boundary. You have to know your limits. Don't, don't inquire what's above and what's below, what's before and after. Fine. Elifnim. What was before? Why is that closed? What is after? Okay, but why is that closed? Might I have a habit? What was? Was. Why do I care if to inquire what was? They both answered. The analogy is a king who told his servants, newly paltering, build a magnificent palace on the, on the trash. They went and built. The king doesn't want us to mention that it was built on a hash. So, too, the world is something from nothing. If you try to imagine what existed before creation, you, can, you, won't, you can't understand nothing. So it's like, it's like uh, you, the world is built on, on a dump. Mm-hmm. Whoever doesn't look out for the, doesn't care about the honor of his creator, it would have been better if he'd never been created, never come to this world. The whole purpose of creation is for Hashem's glory. So if you're not looking out for Hashem's glory, then what are you doing in this world? But What do you mean a person who doesn't care about, doesn't concern himself with the honor of his creator? He gaze at the rainbow. As we speak, it's a beautiful rainbow that everyone can see over Yerushalayim. Over there, it's, over there, it's closer to Shabbos. You see, there's a beautiful rainbow right now you see over Yerushalayim. Hashem is seeing the world is going to hell. He's reminding himself that listen, I made a promise in the rainbow that I'm not going to destroy the world. We see how impotent and completely feckless our leaders, Western leaders, are. It's a culture, civilization. Hashem says the only reason I'm not destroying the world is because because of the keshes, you know. 
that he made with Noyah. Over Yerushalayim. Rabbi Yisuf says, someone who commits a sin in secret. In other words, he cares more about what people think. He's embarrassed, he's ashamed, like a ganif. But he sins secretly. In other words, he doesn't care about Hashem's opinion. Hashem sees you. Hashem is nobody. Hashem is chopped liver. <laughs> you won't do it in front of a shmendrik. Any shmendrik is standing in front of you. You're embarrassed. You're ashamed in front of Hashem. You're not ashamed. You're looking, no one else is seeing, but Hashem sees. So, so therefore, if you have no... So better you shouldn't have been created because you have no respect for Hashem. Because hmm. it says in Ezekiel, like the appearance of a rainbow, that would be in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brilliance all around, the vision of the chariots, the angels. That was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Hashem. So a rainbow is like a manifestation of Hashem's glory. So if you're looking at the rainbow, mistakel means you look very closely, intensely. Not if you just glancingly look. Of course, you have to make a, you make a bracha, so you have to look. But but if you steer, mistakel means you you look intently. Yeah, mistakel, like I mistakel biisha. You walk down the street, you see a woman. But mistakel, if you're like really looking closely, that's a different thing. So so, why was the rainbow chosen as a symbol of Hashem's glory? Because it has many colors and, and it's, it's ambiguous. You don't know one color ends, the other one. It's like, so Hashem also, you can't really firmly grasp Hashem. Hashem is, is infinite and undefined. That's pushing away Hashem's presence. This is what Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. So you put, you're saying Hashem is not present. You're looking, you're sinning as if Hashem no one sees. What do you mean no one sees? Hashem sees as if Hashem is not present. So you're pushing away Hashem's presence. He's saying He's not on earth. Hashem is somewhere in the heaven, in the heaven of heavens. He's not here with me. The elder says, If a person sees as evil inclination is overwhelming him and he can't stop himself, he should go to a different place, a place where you don't recognize him, not in his own town. He should dress up in black. He should disguise, go in disguise. and wrap himself in black. and do whatever his heart desires. Don't desecrate Hashem openly. Don't say, listen, if I'm sinning, I might as well sin in public. Let everyone know. No, you're going to desecrate Hashem's name. People know you and it's not befitting. Go, go in disguise, incognito. No one knows you and sin. And get it over with. Get it out of your system. Some say that, that it's advice because it will, it will get you to not to sin. Because going into a foreign place, an alien place, you're not yourself, maybe you'll lose that appetite that you have to have. Um, there's a saying amongst people, Rabbi Hanan brings, that a dog outside this town won't bark for seven years. And even if he does, people don't pay attention. Because he's not important to them. So, anyway, so he's saying, so firstly, maybe you won't bark. Maybe just changing venues, and you're not yourself. Maybe you say, you know what, what am I doing? But even, right. But, but, but even if not, it won't, it won't, at least you won't desecrate Hashem's name. At least you won't desecrate Hashem's name. So how, so how can you say that so he's doing the right thing? He's not pushing away Hashem's... Why would he give him advice? He's pushing away Hashem's presence. Hashem doesn't see. What does it help me to go incognito? It's worse. It makes it worse. If you do it publicly, I, I'm not embarrassed of Hashem. I'm not embarrassed of people. At least I'm not, I'm not treating Hashem. Here, I'm embarrassed of people. You're telling him, go incognito. So I'm embarrassed of people. But Hashem is watching. Ah, no big deal. Go sin. <laughs> It's not a contradiction. Depends. If he could control himself, he can restrain himself, and nevertheless he chooses. He chooses to not to restrain himself. Then, then it's better he should never have been created. 
Because you're embarrassing Hashem. What do you mean? You're embarrassed of people. You're not embarrassed of Hashem. But if you can't, you're out of control. You can't contain yourself. It's too, you can't resist. It's too powerful. Temptation is too powerful. Then, then the rabbis say, go incognito and sin uh, privately and secretly. At least, you, at least you're preventing a desecration of Hashem's name. Rabbi Hananel says, Chas v'shalom, Rabbi Loy is not saying you're allowed to sin. He's not giving you permission. He's not giving you a green light. So he says, he says he's not talking about sinning, immorality. He's talking about someone who just had to go eat and, and eat and he was afraid he's going to become drunk. So he says, go humbly to a different place. Either it will subdue you and if not... If you if you act wildly, no one knows you. You're not you're not uh, so you're not making uh, you're not de- desecrating Hashem's name. Taisvus argues. He says no. We're talking about immorality, and he doesn't give permission. He's just counseling at least minimize the damage. That's all. He's not saying you're doing anything right. Go ahead and sin. He didn't say uh, that it's a good thing. It's a right thing to do. Of course, it's not a right thing to do. Of course, a person. At the end of the day, always has freedom of choice and you're held responsible. But minimize the damage. You're going to sin anyway. At least don't desecrate Hashem's name in public. Mm-hmm. He was a spokesman. He learned, turn, If you look at three things carefully, it will dim your eyes. Akashas. If you look at a rainbow, Ubandasi, at a prince, Ubakayanim. The Kayanim Maduchanim. Because Hashem's energy, Hashem's presence is passing through their fingers. And if you look at them, right? So if you look, he says, first you look, you're going to go blind in one eye. You look more, you look blind in two eyes. You look third time, you're blind in both eyes. Anyway, so he says, it's, it's, it, diminishes, it diminishes your eyesight. It physically, physically har- harms your eyesight. <clears throat> if you see Hashem, if you see Hashem, he says he can't live. But if you're looking at Hashem's glory, it's a reflection of Hashem. It won't. You live, but it will affect affect your eyesight. By Keshes, where do we know this? Because it says in Ezekiel, "Kemaria Keshi Yebon Biyemagesh." I'm like a appearance of a rainbow and a cloud in a rainy in a rainy day. Mari the Muskvei Hashem is the appearance and likeness of the glory of Hashem. So you're looking at the glory of Hashem. It's going to affect your eyesight. But Nasi the Chsiv, because it says in the in Bamidbar, in the book of Numbers, when the Satram Hashem tells Moshe, you will give from your glory to your student Yeshua, I will take over. And if you look at it's talking about the times the temple was standing when they would stand on the platform of Fighters, they would bless the Jewish people using saying Hashem's name as it is written. Today, you're not allowed to look at a koyin because it says you shouldn't be distracted. You should focus on the bracha. So don't look at the koyin. But then it could hurt your eyes. In times of the way, some bigger mother says it would hurt your eyes. Another thing, who was the interpreter, the spokesman for the shlokish, it's written in Micha, Prophet Micha. Don't believe it. Don't trust a friend. Don't rely on the fish. If the Yitzhara will tell you, Hashem is forgiving. Hashem is kind. Don't worry. You have nothing to worry about. You'll repent later. Or Hashem won't hold the sin against you. It's Hashem's fault. He gave me Yitzhara. So he's not going to blame you. He'll blame himself. <laughs> Hashem will do true. Hashem will say Hashem will instead of you. So don't, don't have faith in that. Don't believe it. Altamim, don't believe it, don't trust it. It says Altamim Reya. Altamim Bedeya. And the word Reya refers to the Yetzhar. It says in the book of Genesis that the Yetzhar is evil from, from birth, from your youth. Man is born to sin. Aluv refers to. So Al-Tariya, Bedeya, is Ra. Bedeya is Ra. Don't believe in the Yetzirah who's giving you all these clever arguments. And don't trust Hashem. Hashem, you know, He'll forgive you. 
Don't trust. It says in Jeremiah, Aluf, the master, Nuriyata, the master of my youth. If you're going to say, who's going to testify against me if I sin in privacy? No one knows. No one knows what I'm doing in privacy. No one knows what I'm thinking. The stones of a person's house. Today, everything. Today you have chips. Everything. You can be under surveillance 24-7. Constant surveillance. Surveillance state. The state of 24-7. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. It says, Today we can see it happening. You have chips and everything. Everything sees and everyone knows everything. Evan, today, what are chips made of? Silicon, of earth, earth, earth sees and hears. Stone will come and a stone will cry out from the wall and the chip, a chip, right? Computer chip, a chip from this beam will testify to it. So, so, Everything, everything we do is recorded. There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Come, remember the rabbis say, the soul of a person will testify against him. It says, it says in Micha, guard the doorways of your mouth and the one who lies in your bosom. What lies in the person's bosom? That's referring to the Yenashama. Yenashama records everything. Everything we do or say a thing Affects our neshama, leaves an impression on our neshama, is recorded in the neshama. You don't live in a vacuum. Everything that we do has an effect, an impact. The children, even children, children grow up healthy, eating healthy. Fifty years later, they live longer. Children, when the parents give them junk food, it affects them. The body registers everything. Nothing gets lost. You can't. But that didn't happen. Everything we say, everything we do, everything we think registers, and it impacts us. And it affected, and the shabma is there. You can't say it didn't happen. It happened, and it affects us negatively or positively. Everyone has two angels that escort it. So they meet and say, they keep a record. They tell exactly, they're here with us 24 7. It says, it says in Psalm 91, Hashem will command angels to watch us in all our ways. Yeshem and mother say, The limbs of a person testify against them. It says in Isaiah, You are my witness. The words of Hashem and I am Hashem. So what's the proof? So, Atameda, you yourself are the witnesses. You, the person, your limbs. So, everything that a person does affects everything around us. He said the house, the house will testify against us. Right? If you do a mitzvah in a house, the house becomes a different house. If you do a sin in a house, the house becomes a different house. Hmm. Everything that we do affects us. And then he says the walls and the beams, and then, of course, your, your limbs and your neshama. And the angels, yeah. That the sacrifices that you bring on Yantiv, the Chagiga, and the, and the oil offering you bring on Yantiv, you're not allowed to lean on. Yaisi ben Yezer was the prince. These were the first dual, dual you know, they, they were duets. Till then, the Mishnah says Shimon Atzadik was the head of the Jewish Supreme Court, and Antigna Shisoyche, and starting with Yezib and Yezer, and Yezib and Yechanan, Yezib and Yezer was the president, and Yezib and Yechanan was the vice president of the Jewish Supreme Court. So they had an argument. This was the first argument, long, prolonged argument. There were many other arguments earlier between Shaul and David. But this was, that was settled. Whenever there's an argument in the Jewish Supreme Court, there can't really be an argument, because then the Supreme Court votes and it's settled. This was an argument that was ongoing. The Supreme Court couldn't settle it. It was like split down the middle. 35 said this, 35 said this, the president said this, the vice president said this, and the, the argument continued for the next uh, four generations. The next, next, four, yeah, next four generations. No, 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 no. Yeah, they still argued. They couldn't come to a conclusion. They argued. The president said, don't, don't lean on Yom Tov. Why aren't you lean on Yom Tov? Two reasons. Firstly... You're not allowed to use an animal yonder. The rabbi is prohibited from you and use an animal yonder. And secondly, you're working hard to lean. You have to lean with all your might. You're working hard in yonder. If you shouldn't do that in yonder. 
the vice president said, yeah, listen, you should. It's, if you're allowed to bring a sacrifice, if I'm allowed to slaughter the sacrifice in Yomtev, shortly I can lead. What are you telling me I can't lead? That's part of bringing the sacrifice. So you see the argument. Yeshua ben Prachi, the president said, Again, the president said no, and half of the Supreme Court was with him, and the other half was with Niti Arbeli, who was the, the vice president of the Supreme Court. And he said, Yes, you should leave. Again, the third generation, the next generation, the next set of leaders, also the same argument. The president said don't. And Shimon Meshatah, the vice president, said Lismich. Then he said, Shmaya, who is the president, the next group. So the five generations of argument. Shmaya, the next group, said Lismich. He, the pre- here the president told you should lead. And the vice president of Talion said, Loy Lismich, don't lead. The fifth generation, Hillel was the president of the Supreme Court. Menachem was the vice president. When Menachem left the Sanhedrin and Shammai entered in this place, the Gemara will explain why, why Menachem left. So then, then it was the, then it was Shammai. Shammai Shammai argued with Hillel. Hillel said, "You should lean." So Shammai Shammai says, "Don't lean." Hillel Now, why did he switch? Till now, first he said the president. All four cases, first he said the president. And then he mentions the vice president. Why here does he, does he switch around? First he mentions Shammai, the vice president. Don't lean. And then he mentions Hillel, the president. So Teisman says, because Shammai's opinion aligned with three generations of presidents. The first three presidents. Yezid ben Yezid. And 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 um, and and um, Yeshua ben Prachi and Yehuda ben Tambay. And Shmaya, four generations. I'm sorry, three generations. The first three generations. And therefore, they put Shammai, the vice president, first because he aligned with the majority of of the presidents. And then Hillel. Because Hillel's opinion aligned with the majority of the vice presidents. But then the question begs the question, then why not in the fourth generation? In the case of Shmaya of Avtalian, should he also he should have said Avtalian first, the vice president, because his opinion aligned with the previous three presidents. Don't lean. There he goes in order. First the president and the vice president. The answer is because if he would have listed Avtalian first, you would think that Avtalian is the president. Because we always list the president first and the vice yeah. president. So that's why you can't list Avtalian first. Yes, there's Shemaya. Even though Shemaya changed. Shemaya was different than the last three presidents. He held like the last three vice presidents. That you should leave. Avtalian held like the last three presidents. But when it came to, comes to Shash, Hillel Shammai, you're not going to make that mistake. Why? Because he just told us that Hillel was the president, Menachem was the vice president, then Menachem left and Shammai took his place. So I know clearly that Shammai is the vice president. So therefore here, I'm not going to make the mistake if I say Shammai first. So that's why he chooses to say Shammai first, because Shammai's opinion aligns with the majority of the presidents who said, don't lean. But Hillel, the president here, held that you should lean just like uh, Shammai. Oh. Continue on side B, 16B. All the first ones, they were the president. And the next ones, Yosef and Yezer was the president. Yosef and Yechonim was the vice president. Yeshua ben Prachi was the president. Isabel was the vice president. Yudim ben Tabe was the president. Shem Meshata was, was the vice president. Shmaya was the president. Aftali was the vice president, the deputy. And Hillel was the president, and and so the rabbis learn two of the three pairs, three of the first, uh, the third three pairs, the three of the three pairs who said, "Don't lean." The presidents who said, "Don't lean," and two of the last pair, five generations of pairs, two of the last pairs who said, "Lean." The first ones were, were the princes, and the second ones were the the um, the deputy presidents, the vice presidents. 
Yehuda ben Tabei av bezim shim meshatach nasi. No, Yehuda ben Tabei was the was the vice president who said don't lean. And shim meshatach he was said lean. He was the one. He, he is the president. Man tan adatan rabbanon who's the rabbi who says. <coughs> But we learn Omar Rabbi Yehuda ben Tabei Ede ben Chamel Melirakti Edzeimim Lozim Lubim Shasadukim Yehuda ben Tabei said, "I should see consolation if I didn't execute a Zeimim witness." Lozim Lubim Shasadukim Sheimim Nezeimim Neragan Shiyargo Yehadegan Did the those who don't believe in the oral Torah. The Sadducees, they argue that you only kill an Eidzaimim if his words were effective, if their false testimony was effective. As a result of their testimony, you put an innocent person to death, only then do you punish them with death. And, and the reality is the exact opposite. When do you put an Eidzaimim to death, a false witness to death? Only after he testifies and the person has been sentenced to death. If the, ex- if the person has been executed, if the sentence has been carried out, then you don't put him to death. The exact opposite. So that's what Yudim and Tabi I should see consolation. If you didn't shed innocent blood, you could only put a witness to death only if both of them are found to be false witnesses. You don't punish, you don't punish them with lashes unless both of them. Only when both of them are found to be false witnesses. But Shimon ben Shatach, Shimon ben Shatach killed one one false witness. I mean, Yehuda ben Tabei killed one false witness. Yehuda ben Tabei accepted upon himself that he's not going to render a ruling until he gets, until Shimon ben Shatach agrees with him. All the days of Yehuda ben Tabei, until the end of his life, he would go and ask forgiveness. Go to the grave of the person that he killed, wrongfully killed by Kaila Nishma. And his voice would be heard. First, the people thought that they're hearing the voice of the person that was killed. Tabe said, No, it's my voice that you're hearing. Because every day I go in the grave to ask forgiveness. And you'll see when I pass away, you will not hear any voice. Hmm. So what do we see from here? Oh, one second. So before we go there, it's not a proof. It's not a proof that the, it was the voice of Yehuda ben Tabe. Maybe it was the voice of the person that was killed. But maybe he asked forgiveness. He was, once Yehuda ben Tabe died, he appeased him. Or maybe he can summon him to the heavenly court. Now that he passed away, he can summon him to the heavenly courts and no longer has to cry from his grave. What we think is like acceptable. Hmm. So says, who, who is the opinion of the Bryce? If you're going to say this Bryce uh, follows the opinion of the Bryce, was the deputy, the vice president, Yehuda ben Tabi was the Nasi and the Kamei Alochem Yishim ben Shata. That's why Yehuda ben Tabi could rule on matters even in the presence of Shim ben Shata. Meaning, on his own, he doesn't have to consult with Shim ben Shata because he was the president. In other words, as long as he was available for consultation, he was on his own. He's the president, so he can rule on his own. Ali, I'm not going to say that. But if you can say that, according to this Bryce, follows the opinion of the rabbis. There was the exact opposite. Yehuda ben Tabai was the deputy, and Shimon ben Shatach was the president. Could he render a verdict without being physically in the presence of, of the president? The mother says, no, it's not a proof. 
My kibble of the kama, what does it mean he took upon himself? He says, I won't even sit in the court unless Shimon Shatah is present. I'm not going to join another court. Another, even if he's the vice president, not the president, he has permission to join another court. Of course, he's not going to render a verdict in the Supreme Court without the, pres- the presence of the president. But he can join another court. And he says, I'm not going to join any other court unless, unless uh, Shimon Meshatach is with me. So it's no proof. But it's clear, now a mission in ethics of our fathers is Yehuda ben Tabeh, Shimon Meshatach. So Yehuda, first he lists the president and then the vice president. But here it's an argument in the mayor and the rabbis. And mayor Taka says, indeed, Yehuda ben Tabeh was the president, Shimon Meshatach was the vice president. And the rabbis say, no, Yehuda ben Tabeh was the vice president and Shimon Meshatach was the president. He says, Yotza, Menachem, Nechoshame. Menachem left. Why did he leave? Leichen Yotza, where did he leave? He turned sour. He went, he joined bad, the bad, the bad society. Bad upbringing. Or he joined the heretics, the Baisusim, who stopped believing in the oral Torah. Or he became a recluse. He went, he went bad. The Essenes, he joins the Essenes. You know, the ascetics. So, right. He went to the service of the king. Like it says, we find in Yosifus that when Herod, Hurdus, was a young boy, Menachem told him that he's going to be a king. Because he wasn't a royal family, but when he became king, he honored Benachem and appointed him as royal minister. And he accepted this appointment to fight the evil decrees from the government, to protect the people from the government. So that's why he had to leave the Sanhedrin. He couldn't, he couldn't be both. You know, it's like, it's like Mordechai when he left, he became the, the, the vice, vice king, the viceroy. Some of the Sanhedrin left him because he couldn't concentrate, be 100% in the Sanhedrin and be at the same time a minister, second in command of the Persian Empire. So, so therefore, Menachem left. Hmm. Right, then Yehuda wants to say that, that uh, Abaya doesn't mean that he became bad. The fact that he, he left the Sanhedrin and went into government position... He considered it as if he went bad because he should have stayed in Sanhedrin. You're immersed in Taira. Why are you leaving Taira and going to become a minister? He should have declined the invitation. Eighty peers of disciples dressed in royal garb went with him also because they, they, for the sake of the Jewish people, they can have an influence. Who are the people? Not, not the ministers, the people who work in the government who really run everything. So to make sure that everything will be run properly. So they left with him. Don't treat the rabbinic prohibition lightly. Oh, reason you're allowed, you're not allowed to lean on an animal on Shabbos is only by a rabbinic prohibition. There's no prohibition in the Torah. And the leaders of the generation were fighting over it for five generations. Yes, no, no, yes. Huh. I'm learning in bits of this. Take more pshita. Obviously. But we know it's rabbinic. But it resembles one of the... So he says, Shavuz Mitzvah, it's tells that even a rabbinic permission, even if it, even it's regarding a mitzvah, this is, we're talking about a mitzvah, to lean on an animal in order to do a mitzvah, to slaughter the animal properly. It's a requirement. And nevertheless, they prohibited it. Even by fulfilling a mitzvah, the rabbis stuck to their guns. And said, no, you're not allowed to. They kept their prohibition in place. And that's the argument. Did they keep their position in place of the mitzvah or not? That's the, the great rabbis are discussing and arguing five generations ago. <clears throat> okay, it's all zabbis. 
Because when the mission and Beya that you're learning, he lists, and we learn the Shvus things. He says clearly, mitzvah activities that are forbidden because of Shvus. So we don't need Rabbi Yechonah to teach us that. It's an open Mishnah. That the rabbis insisted on keeping their prohibitions, even if it's only Rabbinic. He's coming to, to exclude the opinion that holds. That they were arguing whether you need smich at all. They're not arguing whether you need smich. There's an argument whether in general a chagiga needs smich at all. Why not? Because since, when, where do we learn smich? It says, v'samach, we learn, is talking about a shlamim, a voluntary offering. So maybe I only need smich on a voluntary sacrifice, not an obligatory sacrifice like chagiga. And others say no. That I learn an obligatory from a voluntary. I learn one from the other. So maybe it has nothing to do with rabbinic. I would think this argument that five generations are arguing whether you do smicha, not because it's Shabbos or Yamtif. Not because it's Yamtif. Nothing to do with Yamtif. Not Shabbos, with Yamtif. Not because it's Yamtif. It's because in, even in the weekdays you don't need smicha. So he says, no, everyone held you need smicha. The argument is whether you're allowed to do smicha because, because of the rabbinic prohibition. That's what Rabbi Yechon is coming to teach us. From here we learn that smicha, you have to lean with all your might. If you don't have to lean with all your might, what's the big deal? You just put your hands on an animal. There's no prohibition. There's no prohibition of touching. I'm allowed to touch muktzah. I'm allowed to move muktzah. So if I don't have to lean with all my hands, putting my hands on it is not a problem according to anyone. My covet is I'll ask you a question we learned but I said and they should lean their hands on the oil and the burnt offering this obligation is only on the men not on the women say that they're not obligated but if they want to they could I'm Rabbi Yehissi. Sachli Abel Lazar. Rabbi Yehissi said, Abel Lazar told me, Once we had a calf that was a shlamim offering. Rabbi Yehissi, we brought it to the women's courtyard with some halav nashim, so the women could lean their hands. So the, it was brought to the Ezra's Nashim, because the women usually did not go to the Ezra's Yisrael, unless they had to bring a sacrifice. So they wouldn't enter the Ezra's Yisrael, they were in Ezra's Nashim. So they had to bring the, the animal, the live animal, to the women's courtyard, and they performed smicha. So they should have a satisfaction of doing a mitzvah. Not because they're obligated to. They lost have a satisfaction. Oh, we did smicha in the animal. These, these, these animals belong to the women. So to give them this, and therefore they didn't need smich. The animals of women don't need smich. Voluntary animals. Are, but to give them the satisfaction, so why not? doesn't hurt. doesn't take away. And we learned in Rosh Hashanah that this is the proof that women could perform mitzvahs that they're not obligated. It's like time-bound mitzvahs. They want to blow shoifah. They, they want to shake the lulav and the yasin. They want to eat in the sukkah. They're allowed to. The Torah says you're not obligated to. But if you want to have a satisfaction, you don't say, And according to Ashkenazim, we even make a bracha. If you're going to say that you have to lean with all your might, then it's a problem. It's problematic. Because when you're leaning with all your might on the animal, the animal, you're using the animal. You're not allowed to use a holy animal for your own personal usage. So you're not allowed to, if, they're not, if they don't have to do smicha, they're not allowed to do smicha. So we have to say smicha is not whole kaycha. So then we're back to the question. If that's the case, why do we have this five generational argument? What's the problem? Just put your hands on the animal. What's the problem? Why is that a problem? According to Rabbi Yechonah said, they're not arguing whether in general you need smicha. Of course you need smicha. But the question is, are you allowed to do smicha? Or just offer the animal without smicha? So you won't do smicha. But what's the problem? If you don't have to lean with all your might, just they can't put their hands on the animal. On the yamtiv. 
But really, you have to use all your might. And that's why we have this argument, this five-generational argument. Because you're not allowed to do it on Yom rabbinically. So why did they allow the women to smich it? They told him, just rest your hands lightly on the animal. You're right. The women, to please them, they really didn't do smich. It wasn't a real smich. It was like just symbolically. That's the case. If it was just a, a token, a symbolic smicha, why does he have to say that? Nah, the reason we allow them to do smicha is not because they're obligated to smicha, but just to make them happy. Typically, they don't do smicha because not smicha at all. What are you giving me explanations? I know it's because it's not even doing smicha, they're just putting their hands on it, like symbolically. Like when you come to these ceremonies to finish a Torah. So everyone goes over and writes and fills in, fills in the letter. It's, it's nonsense. It's symbolic. You're not doing anything. Because a, a, a letter is kosher, even if it just has the outline. If the ink is erased, I don't care. If it has the outline of the letter, it's kosher. So I didn't do anything. It's just to make people feel happy. <laughs> you know, the cipher doesn't trust people to, 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 you know, to write the letter. And this, to, to really. So if it's just symbolic... So what's the what's the so so you don't have to explain it to me. says He's saying two things. One thing because it wasn't even smicha, and even if it was smicha, to give them a satis, give them a satisfaction to please them. But so the rabbis who say don't do means he shouldn't even do symbolically because it has the appearance. It has the appearance of you doing smicha. Others say no, that the Torah gives permission, according to Rabbi Yossi, the Torah gives permission to smicha, so therefore you're not violating the prohibition of using an animal. The Torah gives them permission. They say you're not obligated to. But if they want, that's part of bringing the carbon, and they're allowed to do smicha with all their might. From here we see, it's the size of an animal. You can't use, just like you can't use the back of the animal. You can't use the side of an animal. This is an argument that we found in Shabbos, in fact, in Shabbos. These are If you're going to say you're allowed to use the side of an animal, why, why do they have an argument in the mission between the president and the vice president? You can do smicha. You can, put, you can do smicha on the side of the head, not on top of the head. It doesn't matter. The prohibition of using an animal. Extends to every part of the animal. The whole animal is off limits. We continue in 178. There's no proof. Really, I can tell you that the prohibition is only on the part that you would use an animal. The back, the top of the head, not the side of the head. But nevertheless, whatever is on the same level with its back is treated like the back. So therefore, it does apply to the side of the head is like the head. Even if the side of the animal is not considered like the back of the animal, but the side of the head is considered. It is the same level as the back. The entire head, not only the top of the head. The side of the head is the same level. Anything that's in the same level of the back as a status of a back, and therefore the prohibition remains, and that's the argument in the rabbis. Everyone have a wonderful special Shabbos.